Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. My name is John Keeley. This is the 389th show of ROI, and our guest for today's show is Dr. Amy Bix, professor of history at the Iowa State University, who is going to talk to us about her book, Girls Coming to Tech, A History of American Engineering Education for Women. The history buffs for today's show are Terry Toppler and Rick Sweet. The show's theme song is Kayla's theme, written and performed by Mark Zapzaptel. Our producer and engineer is, as always, Mr. David Baker. This is the opening segment of our show called Farouk Dinarin, and I'm going to uh, help poor John correct. Uh, it's actually 388 because we lost a show earlier. We had a, a last-minute cancellation um, and a reschedule, so uh, you can change that in your uh, notes that it's uh, show 388, and we're going to be. Wrote this script? What the heck? I know. I mean, you know, if you if you uh, if you paid him more, you might get better quality. I, I don't know what to tell you about that. No, I know his past practice. No, no, yeah. no. Anyway. <laughs> anyway, um, we're going to be talking about the book Girls Coming to Tech, A History of American Engineering Education for Women with Dr. Amy Bix, who's professor of history at Iowa State University. Welcome to the show, Amy. Thank you for having me. We're excited. Um, so let's start out with just some background. Can you give us some background into the, um, the history of engineering education uh, over the last century, and then um, sort of how women have played into that. Sure. Well, the thing that's important to remember is that the history of engineering education has evolved a lot over recent decades. Like all the other parts of science and engineering, it's a human creation. So if you went back to, say, the early 1800s in the United States, you'd find very few actually engineers holding formal degrees the way we have them today. Back then, a lot of engineers just got their training building the Erie Canal or working in the Pennsylvania Railroad machine shops. There were certainly a few places that taught engineering. And not coincidentally, the first place in the U.S. that actually taught engineering was West Point. And that's sort of an important clue to why the history of women in engineering is different than the history of women in science, because over the centuries, women trying to get into science certainly faced obstacles, but there were also ways in which they could get side entries in, say, Renaissance, um, Renaissance Europe. You had women um, helping a brother or a father with science. You had women illustrating botany books. You had women writing popular versions of science books. But none of that really worked for engineering. And the key thing is with engineering, the two institutions that really dominated the history were business and the military. And neither of one of those really gave women even much of a chance for the side entry that had for science. So that's one reason why the history of access for women in engineering is different than the history of women in science. And one of the nice things about teaching at Iowa State is that it's actually this country's land-grant schools like Iowa State that created some of the first opportunities for women to get training formally in engineering just at the time when degrees and credentials were starting to be more important. And it's actually really cool that 
Iowa State College, as it was then known, graduated a couple of the first women who went on to practice engineering in the late 1800s. Okay. Well, then let's talk about the programs. I mean, um, you can keep talking wonderfully about Iowa State. Just let those words roll. But uh, in all seriousness, when you're talking about the initial programs for the land-grant colleges like Iowa State, what did these classes uh, curtail? I mean, I, I, I graduated with history at Iowa State, but was surrounded by engineers, and they were um, devouring the calculus, the physics, and all that material along the way. Was that the same start for um, engineers back then and for these women programs? No, engineering education itself has changed. If you go back to the late 1800s in particular, a lot of it was much more hands-on, much more machine shop. And then as you get into the 20th century, especially after World War II, especially the Sputnik era, a lot of it became much more theoretical and mathematical. So, again, that's another factor that plays into the gender. If you look at engineering in the U.S. in the early 20th century, there's sort of what we might almost call a macho era where engineers are promoted and promoting themselves as building railroads through the desert and roads through the jungle. And, of course, again, that's not a terribly female-friendly environment. And one of the arguments that advocates for women in engineering made as you got into the later 20th century was that engineering was increasingly shifting to more office work and desk work, which in many ways, at least on the surface, looked a little more female-friendly. Um, could you – okay, then to take this question a little further, I read at one point Henry Ford hated to hire the engineers that came out of the college because he, he said in a quote or something like, if they never got grease under their nails, why would I want them there? Uh, and that kind of clarifies, uh, it answers kind of a question I always had about the differences between shop and office. Um, how long did this transition take? I mean, because uh, even after World War II, he was still reluctant to, to go down those roads with the more scholarly. I mean, was this a huge divide or did it, World War II was at the bridge? No, it was definitely a huge divide. And in some ways, it really is kind of a cycle that goes back and forth, where you have some people saying, okay, engineering isn't theoretical enough, so it changes. And then people say, wait a minute, as you say, Henry Ford, we want engineers who actually have a hands-on sense of what they're doing. So there's a move to bring that back. So it's kind of a cycle of balance that keeps going back and forth. But that's one of the... Uh, one of the questions about getting women into engineering for many years, there were criticisms and questions. Did women have the same ability to do 3D visualization as men? Did they have the same hands-on experience? You know, there's kind of the stereotype of guys building radio sets in the garage or tinkering with electronics in the basement. Did, were women encouraged to do that? And so some of the advocates for women in engineering over the years sort of created what you might call sort of catch-up programs to help women get more comfortable with those hands-on elements of engineering. And they found that it actually helped some of the guys, too, because especially as you get to the later 20th century, you can't assume that everyone, all the guys going into engineering, have that same background anyway. All right. Um, so I want to kind of follow that up and, and where John was, was going, I think. When I was a kid, 
the term engineering was used generically. So engineers were sort of like you said that that guy who uh, who fixed the television sets and and did um, you know work on the uh, on the car and maybe did you know so so it was kind of a jack of all trades sort of at least public perception that that was there. Um, now engineering is a highly specialized set of subfields. We have electrical engineers and mechanical engineers and computer technology engineers and all of these kinds of things. So when did that happen? When did engineering start to really define itself into these subcategories? And how did that affect either positively or negatively the way that women were being brought into the field? Well, that specialization really got started in the late 1800s. Um, that's when some of the major organizations, such as the American Society of Mechanical Engineers, get started, and the specialization accelerated into the 20th century. But what you mentioned is really important for gender because there's sort of an interesting psychological test where you ask young kids, say um, elementary school kids or junior high kids, to draw a scientist or draw an engineer. And with a scientist, kind of what you stereotypically get is kids drawing Einstein, the mad scientist. And depending on how much different types of exposure to outreach programs they've had, you may increasingly get kids who draw a woman scientist, especially if, say, a mother or a family friend is a female scientist. But you ask kids to draw an engineer, and a lot of the times, again, unless they have an engineer in the family, they'll just either draw a complete blank or they'll draw a mechanic or somebody who drives a train. And again, disproportionately, that's not going to be a woman that they're drawing. So a lot of outreach for women in engineering has focused on just helping kids understand what it is engineers do early on and then getting them to understand that those jobs are, in effect, open to women as well as men. Okay. This is the last question for our break. Um, Amy, I graduated uh, in 88 at Iowa State, and I had a very good friend of mine. Her name was Betsy. She was in Naperville. She was a mathematical whiz. And she was studying to be an electrical engineer. And I once asked her, I said, what's that like? And she goes, you walk across this auditorium with three other women loaded with men, and you have to learn to get the stare down. And I'm like, the stare down? And she gave me this angry look and says, this is what I stare at my colleagues when I'm walking into that auditorium, and they think I shouldn't be there because I'm a woman. I never forgot that. Obviously, I think it's turned around where there are more women becoming engineers but was that stare that Betsy was telling me about, was that kind of a reality for the women who were trying to be engineers? Oh, absolutely. You see that over and over again. The first women to go to Georgia Tech, the first women to go to Caltech, the women who went to MIT in the years before they really encouraged women. They talk about it over and over again, being the only woman in a class of 200 students feeling the men's stares on them. There's one case, a woman at RPI, when RPI first admitted women during World War II, they walked into the cafeteria and all the men there burst out cheering. And this woman says it made her so nervous she fell down the cafeteria stairs. 
So, yeah, it takes a lot of personal courage. And the thing that makes a difference is having what some people call a critical mass, being not the only woman, but having at least a few other women there so that it doesn't feel quite so isolating. So that's part of the fight for women in engineering education over the years to try to build up enough of that critical mass in college and in employment so that you have less of a sense of being a complete oddity. Okay. We have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of ROI. This is KALA St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. In times of joy, in moments of grief, Broadcasters come through, even when all else fails. Today, with more ways than ever to experience the moments that transform our lives, Americans still choose broadcast radio and television more than all other media combined. We are the local broadcasters of radio and television, reaching more people, touching more lives. Brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where the events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. And my name is John Keeley. This is the second segment of our show referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is Dr. Amy Bix, professor of history at the Iowa State University, and we're talking about her book, Girls Coming to Tech, A History of American Edu- Engineering Education for Women. Our history bus for today's show are Rick Sweet and Terry Toppler. Rick, as a man who spent most of his career dealing with engineering and rocks, you get the first question. Thank you, John. Uh, my job uh, working with engineering was to correct their theoretical models to the reality of uh, when the uh, iron touches the rocks, if you if you will. So, anyway, my editorial comment ends there. <laughs> Amy, uh, my, my mother was uh, uh, selected during World War II to join a program uh, for uh, educating uh, women to design planes, and uh, oh. while the so the first section was going on. I was trying to pull the book out that um, that she was involved in, and she actually was interviewed uh, by Iowa State University for a history product project. And she she gave the university the model airplane that was part of the task training for these women engineers. So uh, I think it's like uh, nice to come full circle talking with you about uh, women in, in engineering. Uh, are you familiar with this, this program that Iowa State was one of, I think, about 12 universities throughout the United States that were training women to uh, build, uh, I know, airplanes, but also other munitions and, and equipment? Yes, yes, that's so fabulous that you've got that connection. I'd love to talk to you more about that at some point. Yes, one of the cool things is... You- I said Iowa State actually turned out some of the very first engineering graduates in this country in the late 1800s. And all the way through the late 1800s, early 1900s, you have 
literally a handful of women getting engineering degrees, largely at land-grant schools such as Iowa State, Ohio State, Cornell, but it really is just one or two at a time. Then World War II hits, and what a lot of people don't realize is most people are familiar with the figure of Rosie the Riveter, the fact that during World War II, factories were running around the clock trying to turn out planes, tanks, and other essential defense material, but the men were getting drafted, going into other jobs, so they recruited Rosie the Riveter women to work on the assembly line. Most people know a bit of that history, but what a lot of people don't realize is that factories were equally short of manpower in the engineering shops. So in World War II, the War Department was calling on on the airplane companies to, to design newer, faster fighters, bigger bombers, bigger transports. So they needed people to design that, to set up the production, and they just didn't feel like they had enough men in engineering around. So they really, for the first time, said, hey, we want to hire women engineers. But of course, since there had only been a handful trained in the generation before then, they just weren't available. So what happens is really cool. You get a whole set of programs during World War II to give women sort of a crash training in engineering so they can go into these factories and help win the war. And so this program is one of the big ones. It was run by the Curtis Wright Airplane Company. And they said, we want to train 700 women in aeronautical engineering, not to give them a full four-year degree because it wasn't the time for that. So they basically just gave them a nine, ten-month crash course. To the, the idea was to train them as engineering aides to go into the plant and basically be assistants to help speed up the task of the men engineers who remained there. So, again, that's the wonderful thing. Iowa State, again, they had one or two women in some years, a lot of years, no women studying engineering. All of a sudden, 1942, they get 100 women on campus there to study engineering. And there's a huge headline and bold type across the front page of the Iowa State Daily, train women here. And it really is just wonderful. On the one hand, it's a cultural shock for the women. It's a cultural shock for the faculty. At Minnesota, yes. one of the other schools yes. that was caught the Curtis Wright cadets, they told the story of how a professor walked into the first class, looked at the room full of women, and just burst into laughter. And eventually he recovered, and he said, I'm sorry, but I've never taught a room full of women before. But the professors found that the women did beautifully. They were a lot more serious than some of the men's students, they said. And so it really was a tremendously exciting thing. And the cool thing is the Curtis Wright program, again, it was a temporary war thing. A lot of these women had never even thought about being engineers before. After the war was over, a lot of them, some of them got married and basically stayed home, had part-time jobs, raised the family. Others went back to what they'd originally planned to do. So if they'd been a psychology major before getting into the Curtis Wright program, maybe they went back to finish a psychology degree. But the cool thing is the publicity for these short-term engineering programs, it also encouraged more women during World War II to think about going for a full-time engineering degree. 
So someplace like Purdue, before World War II, maybe they had one or two or three or four women studying engineering for a degree. In 1945, they had 88 women going for an engineering degree. And so that's what really starts to build up that critical mass that I talked about. Okay. Terry. Yes, um, Dr. Bix, yeah, this very interesting about, yeah, the social evolution of women um, during World War II and how that influenced them uh, to go into different avenues, different fields of study and so on. Uh, my mother, too, she, um, when she was in college, she trained as a pilot because they were seeking uh. female, female pilots at the time. So she was about 20, 21 years old at the time and, yeah, got her pilot's uh, license. So I would like to know, I know your book captures the voices of numerous female engineering students. Was there a particular story that really resonates with you or surprised you during your research? I think the thing that surprised me is just how much sheer hostility there was to some of these first women engineers and I should have anticipated that but it's one thing to think about it abstractly and it's another thing to just go in and see it so particularly the first women at Georgia Tech there's really just some vicious attacks on them from current male students in particular, the men at Georgia Tech in the early 1950s, who assumed that admitting women meant compromising their standards. And so they had all sorts of cartoons basically showing how any woman in engineering must by definition be incompetent. So they had cartoons showing women powdering their noses while the chemistry experiment boiled over and getting their hair caught in machinery and just some of the sheer viciousness. It, it really, you know, as I say, it's, it's one thing to expect it in the abstract, but it's another thing to look back and actually see how deep it ran. Amy, I'm I'm interested. Um, I'm a gifted and talented teacher at both the high school and the junior high level. And about the time when I was getting into gifted ed in the early 90s, there was really a movement and Iowa State was one of those. Uh, there was really a, a lot of programs that were reaching out to high school uh, and junior high age uh, girls trying to get them to come to campus. And have you know spend a day with the engineering program or or uh, whatever um and i know that now um our engineering program pre-engineering program uh at west high school is basically a 50 50 mix between men and women so at, at what point you've used that term critical mass at, at what point has that critical was that critical mass reached or if it hasn't been reached, you know, how close are we? Well, that's the wonderful part of the story. And that's actually the next book that I'm working on, the what I'm calling the rise of the girls' STEM movement, exactly what you say, the conscious efforts to get more young women into science and engineering. People realize basically that if you wait until college to try to recruit women into engineering in particular, it just wasn't going to work because a lot of them 
won't be open to the idea at that point. They may not have the prerequisites in high school. So particularly by the time you get to the 60s, 70s, and 80s, you have this outreach to young women in elementary and high schools to try to really encourage them to kind of find that point where it's easy for them to be turned off and to give them just that extra boost. Part of it was the broader context of the feminist movement. I grew up in the 1970s free-to-be-you-and-me era when you had the encouragement to sort of rethink stereotypical gender roles, and you have Title IX and other structural support to try to fight bias in education. A lot of it is the efforts national, local, international, by individual women in science and engineering and male allies to work with their local schools, to set up organizations, to set up programs. And the thing I love is, as you say, just how mainstream this has become. You know, now you go into Target and you can find entire aisles full of things like Barbie dolls dressed as scientists. We didn't have that when I was a kid. You have entire lines of what they call engineering toys for girls. You have whole sets of books designed to encourage girls to think about role models in science and engineering. And it really is wonderful to see how mainstream that is. These things have funding to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars from major players such as Google and Apple and others in Silicon Valley. You can't get much higher. In 2015, President Obama, he held, you remember, a yearly science fair at the White House. And for a number of years around 2015, he made diversity a major theme of that. There were some wonderful photos of President Obama posing with a group of Girl Scouts. And he had a great conversation where he was talking with them about innovation. They'd invented a little robot to turn pages of a book for somebody who couldn't do that. And there was one point where one of the Girl Scouts looked at President Obama and said, have you ever innovated anything? And he said, (laughs) one or two things. So that, that is the wonderful thing, the way you really have had this campaign for encouraging girls to go into STEM really become part of our mainstream culture now. So that's the wonderful part. Okay. Terry, you got a question? Oh, yes. Yeah, Dr. Bix, I had read that um, even though today we still need to encourage more women to enroll into engineering, I had read that um, it was around 19%, and maybe that's dated, but in the 1950s it was less than 1% and maybe up to 22% today. Can you uh, talk about that, please? Sure, sure. Well, the statistics are pretty much exactly what you said. Um, Post-World War II period, women in engineering were less than 1%. As I mentioned, the numbers rose during World War II of women getting engineering degrees, but especially after World War II with the GI Bill, the number of men getting degrees also rose, so women remained less than 1%. It was actually interesting cleaning out my parents' house some years ago. I came across an old dictionary that my brothers had had from 1959. And just out of curiosity, I I opened it up. And that 1959 dictionary literally defined engineer as a man who does engineering. So female engineers never vanished, but they did become pretty invisible. They really had to fight 
which they did in the 1950s and early 60s, to remind people that women could and did become engineers. And then, as we mentioned, with a lot of the activism, the percentage of women in engineering rose to pretty much around 18, 19, 20 percent by the 80s. The problem is that's where it plateaued for a number of years. And the question is why, what's happened there, and there's no easy answer. But just to show you how complicated this history is, it's a very different story if you look at the history of women in computers. Because there in the 1980s, women actually got 37% of all the computer science degrees in the U.S., And then that dropped by 2012. Women were getting just 18% of the country's computer science degrees. So that, in many ways, is a completely separate story, and it shows you just how complicated this history is. Okay. When we come back, we'll wrap things up, so please stay tuned. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes our 388th show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet, and the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme and was written and performed by Mark Zappadal. My name is Jay Swords. My name is John Keeley. We would like to thank our guest, Dr. Amy Bix, professor of history at the Iowa State University, who talked with us about her book, Girls Coming to Tech, A History of American Engineering Education for Women. The history buffs for today's show were Rick Sweet and Terry Topler. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all our listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Hoso Pula Nala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night. <laughs>